John chapter 5, we're going to read verses 16, 17, and 18. I'll review these quickly because we covered these last week. So I'll review these quickly and then we'll launch our sermon from here because this is a, it's a red letter sermon, meaning if you have a red letter edition Bible where it puts the words of Jesus in red, virtually all that we'll look at today is red letters. It's Jesus giving a dialogue or a discourse, but let's kind of set the stage. So we talked last week about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, healing this lame man that's by this pool. And, and he does this on the Sabbath day, and he tells this guy to take his mat and to walk. And the religious leaders pick up on this because you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath day. So Jesus, you shouldn't have healed him. And guy, you shouldn't have carried your mat. What's your problem? And it starts this friction in between Jesus and the religious leaders. And this kind of starts to bubble up uh, to the surface here in verses 16, 17, and 18. And Jesus is really going to get to the root of what this was all about in the first place and why he healed on the Sabbath and why he told this man to carry his mat. So look at verse number 16. It says that therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So Jesus, you can't work on the Sabbath. You did work on the Sabbath, so we're against you, so much so that we're going to start to devise plans to slay you or to kill you. Jesus answers them in verse 17 and says this, a, a great phrase, and if you understand this, you understand the rest of the, of the chapter, but you got to get this phrase. He says, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. So my father, God, has worked every day up until this point, and so I get to work as well. What Jesus is saying is the same rules that apply to God apply to me. That he got to work and he, he isn't bound by the Sabbath. He can make it rain on the Sabbath. He can heal people on the Sabbath. He can run the world on the Sabbath and he doesn't need to rest his head. So I get to work on the Sabbath as well. Same rules for God apply to me. So they understand what Jesus is saying. Verse 18 says, The Jews sought the more to kill him because not only had he broken the Sabbath... But he also said God was his father, making himself equal with God. So they understand perfectly what Jesus was saying. I am equal with God. They just don't buy it. They don't believe what Jesus is saying. Now, this is where we left off last week, but the conversation doesn't end here. Jesus is going to step up. Jesus is going to press further into this idea that he is God with extreme clarity and extreme precision. And this is what I want us to understand, that Jesus really steps up and he says, let me be clear, here's what I said and here's what I meant, and we'll understand that as we move through verse number 30 of this chapter. So uh, let me pray, we'll have one more song, and then we'll begin to understand these, these additional 12 verses. I'll tell you up front this morning, I'm going to walk through the text, and we'll understand the text completely, and then I'll apply it at the end. Normally we'll understand, apply, understand, apply, and we'll alternate as we go through the sermon. Today we're going to understand it all, and then we're going to apply it all in two big motions. But first let us have one more piece of music. Father, we... We want to understand your word this morning. We want to know what it says, to get what it says, and apply it to our lives. So would you help us with this? Uh, Father, we want to see you properly. Jesus, we want to see you properly. We want to understand who you are, who you said you are, what that means for us. So would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you work alongside? And would you please... Help us to understand what this says and help us to have a high view of Jesus, an accurate view of Jesus from this text this morning. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Uh, I'll start with a question this morning. Have you ever made a claim that you couldn't back up very well? It seems like I do this every year when the new NFL season rolls around, which means that the new NFL fantasy football season is rolling around. And uh, if I have a guilty pleasure, it'd probably be more fantasy football than it would social media. Uh, you can check my phone. There's a, there's a little bit of time on social media, but I don't spend much there. Uh, for me, that would be kind of my guilty pleasure. And every year when that happens, uh, my phone starts to blow up with text messages from uh, many people in this room. They're in the fantasy, the Harvest Fantasy League uh, with me. And 90% of it, my wife will attest to this, 90% of it is an utter waste of time and just people colossally running their mouths and saying how good they're going to be, how I'm going to dominate this season, that, you know, I'm going to run the table and I'm the champion already and my draft was the best and on and on and on and on. But what you know, something happens about every year week four or five for me is that I realized all the claims that I made, I may not be able to back up. That this guy got hurt, this guy got arrested, this didn't happen the way that I, that I thought it was going to, which is sad that it happens, but it does. You lose players because of arrest. But it, it, all of a sudden you start to realize, you know what, I may not be able to back up my claims. And then excuses start coming, right? And you start to try to backpedal your way out of the claims you, you made, but no one will let you do that. They start, you know, taking screenshots from two months prior and sending them to you and, and laughing at you, those sorts of things. And Jesus here makes a claim that he's God, but he's not going to backpedal on it. Jesus is not going to back off of this. Now, he could have read the room and, and known very clearly that, you know what? You're getting a little a skittish on me. You're, you're kind of upset with what I'm saying, that I'm telling you that I'm equal with the Father. You know, let's take a time out. Let's come up for air. Let, let's not, you know, let's not be at odds with each other here. But instead of mitigating his speech, Jesus is going to lean in further and add fuel to the fire. And Jesus steps up, not back. Jesus is not going to say, I'm so sorry, did I offend you? Did you not like what I said? He is going to increase his clarity. He's not going to be coy. He's not going to be shy. And he's going to say, I am God. And by that, I mean, I am in complete harmony with the Father. I have power and my word to give life. Everyone gives an account to me and I will judge the world. You should honor and worship me like you do the Father. I have dominion. I have a kingdom. And he's going to make it very clear. That what he just said is true, and he's going to elaborate on that extensively. And that's what we're going to see this morning, is Jesus elaborating on the fact that he did say he was God, and what he means by that. So let's walk through this text together quickly. I want you to see right off, Jesus is going to say in the first couple of verses here, that the Father and the Son don't operate independently from each other. There's no daylight between them, that they are inseparable. Jesus says in verse 19, he answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. So, a couple notes on this. First of all, he says, Verily, verily. He's going to say this all throughout this text, which means I swear to you in advance of the truthfulness of what I'm about to say. But I'm telling you, what, I, what I'm about to say is true. If I'm lying, I'm dying. I, I'm, this is true, what I'm about to sell, tell you. Then he calls himself the Son, which is over and over and over again in the Gospels, but especially in John's Gospel, the Son, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. What does this mean? This isn't just a Son, this is the Son. Because there is a sense in which anyone who knows God, has relationship with God, and loves Him, 
could say that, that you're a son. This is why, or a daughter, this is why we could pray our Father which art in heaven. Because we could view that relationship, that I've been adopted into the family, and I'm a son, or I'm a daughter. But Jesus says that he is the son. And his audience would have known what this meant. Because in our culture, if, if dad passes away, he would generally leave an inheritance to the family. It would be unusual if dad had four children and he passed away and the will was only to one child but no one else got anything. We would say it's, it's usual if you divvy it up. You know, unless there's some sort of falling out or one of the kids is just a knucklehead or something. I mean, usually this is going to go to the kids. This may even go to the grandkids. This may be divided as an inheritance. But in the first century, in a Semitic culture, it was not that way at all. It was the law of primogeniture that... The firstborn son or the only son was the one who received the inheritance. In this culture, the firstborn son or the only son would receive all of the father's wealth, all of the father's status, all of the father's position. This wasn't divvied up. This wasn't parsed out. This meant that the eldest son or the only son was equal to the father and would receive all of this. So when Jesus says that he is the son, or they say that, you know, you claim that God was your father, they understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that I am equal with, that I receive all of the inheritance, the wealth, the glory, the honor, that that belongs to me. So Jesus says, I tell you, this is true. I'm the son, but he says the son can do nothing of himself. Now, what's he saying? Jesus is saying that there, he is not independent from the father, not partially, not completely, not, not a bit, not a smidge. That there's no daylight between them that Jesus doesn't operate and act as a separate God opposed to and over against God, but he operates in sync with, in independence with the Father that they are together. And he says, for whatsoever things he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. There's complete harmony of action between the Father and between the Son because it's actually with the Spirit as well, a triune Godhead, not separate gods, but one God, it's impossible for Jesus to take independent, self-determined action on his own against God as his Father. All that he does coincides with the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. That there's no separation here. There's not independence here. We are together. Everything I do coincides with God the Father. He says, how does this happen? Verse 20, For the Father loveth the Son... And showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. So Jesus, how can you act in sync with God? How can you act in sync with the Father? Well, it's because the Father loves me, and out of his love he discloses to me and gives me all that he does. There's continuous disclosure between the Father and the Son, that we're in sync in action because we're in sync in thought and we know everything about each other. This is together in harmony as well. I recently had one of our uh, young people ask me, do I have to tell my parents everything? And I told them, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And yes, you need to be honest and open with your parents and, and you need to do that with everything. But Literally speaking, technically speaking, it's impossible to tell your parents everything or any other human everything. Even if they were your shadow 24-7 and they went everywhere that you went and they were by your side all the time and saw everything that you did, there are still things happening internally, thoughts, feelings, whatever. You can't actually tell, tell someone everything. You, those of you that are parents, you get this. Well, you've tried to parent in sync with the other parent 
Husband and wife saying, you know what? We want to be on the same page. We want to act the same. We want to have the same calls when it comes to you did this. So now here's the punishment. We want to be in unison with each other. But try as you may, you can't do that perfectly. You can't have complete sync between what each other are, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're doing. You can do a pretty good job of it, but you can't do it completely. And what Jesus is saying is when it comes to me as the son and the father, there is complete sync here. There is complete harmony here in what we're thinking, what we're doing, what needs to be done. There, there is no independence here. We are together. There's no daylight in between us. This is why Jesus can tell Philip, in John chapter 14, that, Philip, have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me? He that hath seen me has seen the Father. So how do you say unto me, show us the Father? What Jesus is saying is, Philip, you've seen me, so you're seeing the Father. I, I, am, I am the mirror of the Father. We are, we are the same. You are seeing the Father. So don't ask to show you the Father. I'm disclosing him to you. I'm narrating, narrating him to you. I'm exegeting him to you. You get to see him through me. Now, if you think that that is head spinning, for Jesus to try to explain how it is that there's one God, but that is in Father, Son, and Spirit, how, how is this possible? That's what he's doing. He's explaining this as best he can. If you think that that spins your head, he says, I'm going to give you something else. This is going to make you marvel. You're going you're to stand in amazement of this. Because there's even greater works. Jesus, what's he talking about? I just healed on the Sabbath, and I just did this, but I'll give you some works that are really going to make your head spin to demonstrate that I am God. To demonstrate that what I said was true. Here's what he's going to say in verse 21 and 22, that my works and the Father's works are so in unison that I get to give life and I get to judge humanity. I get the God jobs. That's what he's going to say. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, quickeneth is an old English word for make alive. God has the prerogative that he can raise up the dead. He can make people come to life if he chooses. Even so, the Son quickeneth or makes alive whom he will. Now, everyone before this time had presupposed that God was the only one who could raise the dead and who could give life. This is why you'd have passages like 2 Kings in the Bible where you have this leper and you're asked, am I God to kill and to make alive? Like, how could I do this? How could I make them whole? How could I raise them? I'm not God. I don't have that power. That's God's job. Rabbinical tradition was accurate when they said that God held certain keys that mankind does not hold. God held the key to the power of the rain. In the first service, it was pouring in here. I was, it was almost difficult to hear myself. It was raining so hard for a few moments. And that's, that's God's prerogative to make it rain or not rain. I can't step up in a boat where there's a storm and say, peace be still, and it be still. But Jesus could, right? God had the power of the womb, they said. That if you're struggling with infertility, try as you may, you need to go to God and God can unlock that and God can give you a child. God had that power, but they knew that God had the power of life. God had the power to resurrect the dead. There was no one else that could do this. And Jesus says, you think that healing a layman was special. Wait till you see what's in store. I have the power of life to pronounce life. And he'll give you more detail on this in a few moments as to what this means. But I have that prerogative and that power. Verse 22, he says, For the Father judges no man, but has committed the judgment unto the Son. Once again, this is seen as the responsibility and the duty of God. 
that we intuitively know that we will give an account to someone one day and we know who that someone is, that we're not going to die and give an account to a mirror. We will give an account to God. And Jesus is saying, who judges? Who are you going to give an account to at the last day? Who's going to raise you? Who's going to do this? That, in fact, is me. This is why Romans 14 will tell us that we should not judge our brother because it's not our job to be the judge and it it's, doesn't fall to us, but Jesus is the judge and it tells us that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That throne and that judgment, that courtroom, who gets the verdict, who gets the gavel, who gets to be the judge, that is Jesus. So are you following the progression here? Jesus, same rules that apply to God apply to me. And they say, that's blasphemy. So Jesus says, let me explain. There's no daylight between me and the Father. We're in complete unison. I do not act independently. What the Father does, the Son does. How can you, how can you do this? Because the Father continuously discloses all that, all that He wants done, all that He does to the Son, so that we're always on the same page. We're always working together. And two of the greatest demonstrations of this are, I have the power of life, and I get to judge everybody. So that's like crystal. I mean, Jesus is being so clear as to what he meant by I'm God, but he's not done. He's going to give you more of this. And verse 23 is, is the most impactful verse to me. Jesus says, I get the same honor and I get the same worship that the Father does. Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. In this verse, Jesus not just accepts worship, but Jesus demands worship. You honor the Son, you worship the Son, just as you honor the Father. I deserve equal worship, equal honor with God. Now his audience would have known that nothing with a beginning point can be worshipped. This is why Daniel and John, when they see an angel and they're in awe and they fall down the worship, that the angel says, get up. Don't worship me. I'm a creature like you. Admittedly, a better looking and a more powerful creature than you, but I'm a creature like you. Don't worship me. The creature worships the creator. And Jesus is saying here, I, I get worship. I don't have a beginning point. I am God. When you think of the Father, you can think of the Son. We are together. Now, any religious Jewish person would have known that like, this would have struck them as blasphemy because the Bible tells us in Isaiah that God doesn't share his glory. He doesn't share glory with, with someone else. But Jesus says, I get the same. We are together. We are one. If, and then he goes on to say, if you aren't honoring me, then you really aren't honoring the Father. You can't have one without the other. I've had people tell me as a pastor, as I've talk with them that, you know what, I don't really believe in Jesus, but I believe in God. I, I, don't really, I, I don't really believe in Jesus, but I believe there's a higher power. I don't really believe in Jesus, but I believe there's some sort of divine force. And Jesus says, nope. If you reject me, you reject God. It's not no Jesus, but yes, God. No, those are together. That, those, these are very strong statements, right? These are very strong statements that Jesus is making, that I get the same honor. You worship me. You don't say that you're honoring God if you're not honoring me. That's not how it works. Then he's going to go on to say that those that believe on me, Jesus, get life from the life giver. That if you believe on me, 
you get life. And he's going to spell out in greater detail what it meant that he had life, what it meant that he had judgment. He'll say in verse number 24, Verily, verily, there it is again, I'm telling you the truth. I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Jesus divides the world into two categories. Those that have life, those that have condemnation. Those that have life, those that have death. I'm dividing them into those two. You say, what's the watershed? What's the line of demarcation? What, what makes it to where someone has life and not condemnation? Life and not death. Jesus says, you hear my words and you believe. You hear my words and you believe. Now they were hearing his words, but the question was, are they going to believe? And Jesus says, if you believe, I, the life giver, will give you life. Verse number 25 Verily, verily, I say unto you, I'm telling you again, it's true. The hour is coming and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. What Jesus is going to say is there's something happening now, it now is, and the hour is coming. There's something coming. In theology class, you would call this already, not yet. There's something happening now, already, but there's something not yet happening that's going to happen. And Jesus is saying, my life-giving power, the the vivification of the voice of God to make people alive is happening now and will happen later in a fuller way that the life-giving power that I'm giving now will be ratified one day in a fuller extent. And he's going to tell us what, this, what exactly this looks like, that the dead hear and live. So now, spiritually, those that believe on Jesus who are dead are no longer dead, that he gives life to them. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not about making good people better. It's about making dead people alive. Jesus says, I come to give life, and I'm doing this now for, how can I do this? For as the Father has life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now we know that all life comes from life before it. Life produces life that produces life that produces life, except for the origin of life. There has to be the uncaused cause. There has to be the beginning point. And what Jesus is saying is, you've known this to be God, and that's me. I have life in and of myself. So I get to give life to who I want to. That's my prerogative. This is why John, in a different book, same author, but when he writes 1 John, he calls Jesus that eternal life. He just, he just calls him life. That's just the title I'm going to give him. Eternal life, because life is in and of him. Verse 27. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. I get life, I get to do what I want to with it, I get the authority, I get to judge because I'm the Son of Man. I've probably once a month mentioned this to you because this is all through John's Gospel. This is Jesus' favorite designation of himself as the Son of Man. It's a reference to Daniel. Daniel writes about this Son of Man who's coming in power and glory one day, who has dominion, who has an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom won't be destroyed. Everyone serves him. Daniel says, here's the Son of Man. And Jesus says, I have the power, I have the judgment, I get to execute this because I am the Son of Man. This is actually what finally tips the scales all the way over in Jesus' trial and crucifixion is because he said, I'm the Son of Man. They pay Judas off, Judas betrays Jesus, he takes him to the religious leaders, they hold Jesus in the wee hours of the morning in Caiaphas' house and they put him on trial. 
they eventually, after his mock trial, will flog him and will beat him before they take him over to Pilate. But during those hours, they, they got some false witnesses in, but then they wanted Jesus to give his own testimony, and Jesus wouldn't talk. They got real frustrated with him, that he wouldn't answer their accusations, that he wouldn't open his mouth, that he wouldn't say anything. And finally, Jesus opens his mouth, and he says this in Matthew 26. He says unto them, Thou hast said, nevertheless I say unto you. Look, you said it, but I'll tell you. And here's his words. Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And they knew what he was saying. They knew he was referencing Daniel because the high priest says, rent his clothes, ripped his clothes and said, he hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Look, he said it. He called himself God. He, that's what the Son of Man meant when Jesus uses and employs this term. This is me, the power, the dominion, the glory. This is me. Verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. So he said, here's something happening, but he told us the hour was coming. So what was the hour coming? What was this life-giving power that was going to happen one day? What are you talking about? He'll tell you. One day my life-giving power is going to do this. In the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Jesus is saying, I will rise, I will defeat the grave, I have life, I have power, and I will cause everyone to rise one day. Those that believe on me, they get life, everlasting life. They're raised to life. Those that do not, they're resurrected unto damnation. He uses the word condemnation earlier. I know this isn't popular, but I didn't say it. He did. I'm just telling you what he said. He said this, this will happen one day. There's a future resurrection for everybody. And I'm not doing this on my own. I'm not doing this independently. But my voice will do this. I'm in unison with the Father. But I'm telling you, I will call them to life. That's me. What you thought God was going to do, God is doing it because I'm God. That's me. I'm doing it. Verse 30 is going to circle back around to how he started. I can of my own self do nothing as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Once again, there's no daylight. I'm not acting independently from the Father. I'm not doing my own thing. We are, we are together. We are in sync. We are in unison. This is Jesus stepping up and saying, let me be clear. And, and about... 80,000 different ways. Any way you can slice it, he tries to let you know, yep, I, I, you were right. I did say I was God. Yep, I am God. Yep, that's me. That's my job. God's job, my job. Over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. So, that's what the text says. Let me, let me give you two things and we'll move on. First of all, if you know Jesus as Savior and you say, I believe on him. I have heard his words. I believe. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. Then I'll give you some application. If you would say, you know what, I'm not, and I struggle to believe that. Because a good chunk of his audience struggled to believe this. I would encourage you to be here the next two weeks. Next week, we will talk about the resurrection. It's Easter Sunday. The resurrection is the greatest sign of, trust me, what I said was true. If he rose, then you got to listen to what he said. Because that's kind of special. If he didn't raise, then you don't have to listen to what he said. Everything hinges on that. 
The week following that will actually continue this text, verse 31 on following, where Jesus will recognize that perhaps you would struggle to believe these audacious claims. So let me give you some testimony, and he'll put three different witnesses on the witness stand, hypothetically speaking, but he'll, he'll, he'll put them on the witness stand and say, look, that's a testimony to what I just said. That's true. This is a testimony to what I just said. That's why you can believe it. Here's a testimony. He'll do that. So we'll look at kind of the validation or the proof of these claims over the next two weeks. So if you feel like, you know what, I'm struggling with that, well, keep reading the text this week on your own, but we'll talk through that the next couple of weeks on why this is believable. But let me take this morning and end this with, if you do already believe this, what this means for you and what you should take away from this. There's a lot, but I'll just give you a couple. First of all, it means that there's no middle ground with Jesus. This, this has to mean that you cannot be 50-50 with Jesus. You cannot take the very popular approach in our culture of Jesus was a good man, Jesus was a moral teacher, Jesus was enlightened like Muhammad, like Buddha, like, you know, he was an enlightened guy. And that's it. Good man, good teacher. I'll listen to what he said. You can't say this and have a good man option. It does not exist. There's no middle ground. You say this, and either one of three things are true. Either you lied, you said you were God, and you're not, which makes you a liar, which is not good man category. Or you didn't lie, you thought you were telling the truth, but you're crazy. You thought you were telling the truth, but it's not actually true in reality, so you're a lunatic. That's not a good man option. Or you were right, which makes you far more than a good man. It makes you Lord. It makes you God. You don't get a middle ground. You, you are forced here. Jesus forces your hand with what he says. Up until this point, hey, I do some miracles. Let me help out this wedding. Let me heal this person. Let me look at this. You can almost take a good man, a good man approach. But here, he makes it abundantly clear, that is not an option on the table. Your reaction cannot be, well, I kind of like you and I'll listen to what you say, but I don't like, I don't completely buy that you're God. You don't get that option. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And if you grew up in a, in a Muslim culture or in a Hindu culture or something like that, you would completely get this. You would get, you would get that your belief in Jesus was everything. That, that there wasn't a middle ground. Now, in our American culture, it's culturally acceptable to have a middle ground. To go to church, say you're a Christian, say you believe in Jesus, but treat him as a good moral teacher. And I'll read his words occasionally and I'll kind of... I'll listen to what he says. Maybe I like that. I don't like that. But it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't jive with the text. It doesn't make sense. You can't do that logically. You, you, get, you don't get good, a good man option. You get a bad man or a God man. You get one of those two. You cannot come away from this text and say, well, yeah, I, I like Jesus. You know, he's my assistant. He's my co-pilot. He's, he's the man upstairs. He's, he's my add-on, my plus one. You know, you don't get a, Jesus is a cosmic vending machine giving me spiritual services that I run to when I want something, but then I run away from him and I'll call you when I need you, Jesus. You can't do that with this. You can't do that with this. It's, it's all or nothing. It's one or the other. The pendulum has to swing one way. And those that God showed up to and taught, those that believed, even the people in this text get it. The text is very clear. Part of them want to kill him. The other part, his disciples, leave everything and follow him. 
Those are actually logical responses to what he said. I don't agree with kill him, but it's actually a logical response. That his audience got it. Either I'm all in and you get everything, or you're crazy, or you're lying. That's blasphemy, we kill you. One or the other, there's no middle ground. You don't get to do that with Jesus. I would also say this. There's a pattern for us to follow. This, this text here, if you walk through 16 all the way down through 30, gives us a synopsis of the career of Jesus Christ. Gives us a beautiful picture. And what you find is that Jesus is equal with God, 16, 17, 18. Rules that apply to God apply to me. You're, you say you're equal with God, yes. But then you find in the next few verses that Jesus comes down and he humbles himself and he submits himself to the will of the Father. I'll only do what the Father tells me. I'll only do what the Father shows me. Now in verse 23, you find that he has all the honor and all the glory and he's the judge and he has the dominion. So what you find is Jesus equal with God, submitting himself and coming low, now lifted back up high with worship and honor and glory. This is exactly what Philippians 2 tells us about Jesus. I'll read it to you. But follow the progression. High, come low, back up high. Here's what it is. Talking about Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus did not think it was crazy to say I'm equal with God. That's, that's not robbery. That's in my grasp. That's, that's, it is what it is. But... He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Talking about him coming to earth and being found in as, in, as fashion as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, going lower and lower. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That if the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do you find? Equal with God, humbling, obedient, submissive, honor, reverence, name above every name. So here in this synopsis of the life of Jesus, you have one of the most practical, yet one of the most unpopular of all the Christian principles of living. And that is, you would find over and over again in the Bible, things like this. The way up is actually down. The way to get is to actually give. The way to happiness is not to seek your own happiness, but to actually seek the happiness of others. The way to true power is to serve. The way to peace and contentment and joy is actually submission to the will of the Father. Now, especially that last one, that the way to peace and joy and contentment is through submission to the Father, that flies in the face of most self-help books. That flies in the face of what most people would call common sense and would say, you know what? That's scary, Pastor. So you're saying I should take what I want, my agenda, my will, how I think life should go, and I should submit that to Jesus, and I should say you get to be in control, and you get to, I'm not your co-pilot, you're just the pilot, the end, you know, you get to drive, you get the reins, that I submit to him, that, that sounds scary to me. As a matter of fact, pastor, it sounds terrible. If I submit to his will and do what he tells me to do all the time, that means I'm going to have to be honest at work 
a month from now about that work situation, and that's going to mean career suicide. That means if I obey him, I'm going to lose some friends that aren't really into being on team Jesus, and I may have some family members who think that I'm crazy. That means if I serve him, my schedule and even my emotions are going to be ripped up because I am going to be involved with people that ordinarily I wouldn't be involved with helping them and serving them. And this is going to mean goodbye to what I want for my schedule. This is, this is going to run, take a toll on my emotional gamut trying to help them. This, this doesn't sound that pretty. I'm going to give you a logical reason and a practical reason why you should do this. Logically... It's just the fact that Jesus is God, okay? God's throne isn't a duplex, right? He's not time-sharing his dominion with you. There is no chance that God is going to tell you, you know what, why don't you sit on the throne for a little bit? Why don't you judge humanity? Why don't you call them to life? Why don't you be God? You run the show. That's not going to happen. Why? Because he actually is God. He's not going halvesies with you on this. There's, there's, no, there's no scenario in which Jesus is going to give you the reins and say, okay, I now, I will make you sovereign and I'll share this with you. Even Jesus was submissive to the Father and the servant's not greater than his master. So logically, you have to understand that Jesus is God. If the text is true, he's God. That's his right. That's his prerogative. And, and I would say that this is doubly true. So it would be true if Jesus was just creator and he made you, and he had life-giving power, and he was eternally existent, then you would, out of duty, owe him honor and worship and praise as a creature to the creator out of duty. But he's more than that. He, as your creator, came, humbled himself, and died for you to redeem you of your sin, so you owe him your life twice. He created you, and he saved you. So logically, there's no world where you can escape this. But practically, which is probably what you're most interested in, which I'll say up front, I can't make this completely pragmatic for you. There is a measure of faith here. And if it was, hey, help this make sense. When it makes sense, I'll submit my will to the Father, then it wouldn't actually be submission. You'd still be running the show and calling your own shots and only submitting when you felt like it. But I'll do my best to practically help you see why this is, why this is a good thing. Without this, you will never have harmony with God the Father. You can be his child, he will save you, he will forgive you, but until you say, no holds barred, I give you everything, I submit to you, you will never be in, com in complete agreement with him. There, there will always be division. What is division? Die, meaning two, vision. Two visions. You will have a vision for your life, God will have a vision for your life, and you'll be at loggerheads. It'll be a constant game of tug-of-war. If there's one thing I know about tug-of-war, it's that it... it the rope may move a little bit, but it ain't moving a lot. We ran a, a, a teen camp in California where I ministered previously for five years. And uh, we would have juniors and teens, probably 700 or so teenagers would come. We divided up teams. We played all these games. We had a great time. But the teams were massive. They were like, you know, 100 or 125 per team. So it's difficult to come up with competitions where this many people can play at once. So Thursday was always the grand finale. There would be a giant tug-of-war competition. We had this rope that would stretch literally beyond wall-to-wall. -wall. I mean, it was massive. 
You, we do guys' teams and girls' teams, and you could do like 50 per team on either side of this rope. It was huge. And that, that little ribbon would be right in the middle. You'd hold it. They'd all get there, and you'd blow the whistle, and everyone would pull as hard as they possibly could with all their might, with all their strength, and that, that little ribbon is going, just barely moving. And eventually it would tick, 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 tick. All of the might and effort, it would finally get, you know, maybe this far, and then the winner was declared. So you can have a little bit of movement when you're in a tug of war, but you're not getting a lot. And when you are, when there's division between you and God, when there's not agreement, you say, well, then how do I be in agreement? You got to submit. He, he's not going to. He's not. If you're holding your breath for that, stop. Like he's sovereign, he's Lord, he, he doesn't have to. So if you submit, you get to be in agreement with God, which is an important thing. But more importantly than that, the way up is down right? Jesus was high, low, back up high. You don't stay low. Your submission to the Father's will may feel like going low, but you don't stay there. It is, I will admit to you, it is a scary thing. I will admit to you that it's not fun particularly. The best example I can give, this to, best example I can give to you is Jesus in the garden. Most of you would know that story, that Jesus is in the garden wrestling with the will of the Father. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I see what is required. I see what is coming. Jesus isn't playing hopscotch in the garden. Okay, so let's not act like submission to the Father's will is this yippy, skippy, uber fun all the time sort of thing. It is scary sometimes. He was sorrowful unto death as he submitted his will. So here's Jesus, but choosing, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Submitting it in sorrow, in grief, but that's not the whole equation. You have to understand that the Bible tells us he was able to do that for the joy that was set before him. That that sorrow, that grief, that angst, that scariness of surrendering control was mixed with a future joy on the other side. So you have to know that your submission and your lowness, your humility is going to produce a joy and a peace and a contentment on the far side that you can't lose sight of. Practically, you've got to hold on to that. You have to know that's coming. You say, Pastor, I don't think, that, I don't think the scariness and, and, the, and the submission and the surrender of, of my control mixes with joy. What well, did in Jesus and the example that he gave for what he was doing was actually travail and childbirth. We'll get to it later on in John, but he's, he says that a window into what's happening is travail. What, okay, ladies who have birthed a baby. Who's birthed a baby in the room? Quite a few of you. God bless you. I never have, but I've been in the room a few times. And I understand what happens. Your will is out the window. Is it not? The baby's coming, and you ain't got no choice. There's no stop button. There's no panic button. There is, there is no, let me put up a prayer and, 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 you know, have this stop. You are not in control. And that's scary, is it not? All the medicine, all the doctors, all the epidurals in the world, it's still scary. And I don't even fully get it, but I've, I've been there. I know that's a scary thing. That's not a fun thing. The travail, the pain that you go through. But what's on the other side? The joy of birthing that child. 
They're mixed. That surrender your, your will out, the scariness, the travail, the pain, now mixes with the joy. And wouldn't you say it was worth it? Wouldn't you say on the, <clears throat> on the far side, I know maybe they're 10 now and they're idiots and, and you don't feel like it's worth it all the time. But you know it was worth it, right? Th- that's, that's what's happening here, okay? That's, that's the principle. That's the pattern. Your submission, it is scary. It is sometimes sorrowful. It does, it does feel like suicide of your will. But you can't, you got to wrestle up to the perspective and to get the paradigm that the joy is coming and this will produce peace and contentment and something beautiful that you would have never had had you not surrendered to the Father's will. It's good in the long run. It's good. It's for His glory, but you're good too. It's good. So employ the principle, understand it. Lastly, I'm done. No one's going to bypass Jesus. I think for sure we learned that from this text. Jesus, I hurried past this because I knew it would circle back around to it, says, the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves are going to hear my voice. And some are going to be raised unto everlasting life, and some are going to be raised unto damnation. What you can know for sure is that nobody's bypassing Jesus. Not even you. You're not sneaking behind the line. You're not wiggling past him. You're not going to fly below the radar. There's no one that's going to escape Jesus in, in his judgment. And your, your eternal destiny hinges on what you do with Jesus and who you say he is. Do you believe he's the son of God? Do you believe that he was God come down in the flesh for you? Do, do you believe that he has life to grant you? Do you believe that he died to give you that life, that he rose from the dead? If not, we can deal with your biggest problem today. The biggest problem that all of us have, we have a myriad of problems, but our biggest one is our sin problem. That's why Jesus came, to deal with that. It's why he came. And he gives good news. That's what his gospel is. It's good news. If you don't like hell, you don't have to go there. If you don't want to suffer, you don't have to because Jesus suffered. If you don't want to endure the wrath of God, you don't have to. Jesus endured the cross and endured the wrath of God for you. You don't need to die in your sin because Jesus died for your sin. You're not going to escape the judgment. You're not going to escape him, him telling you that it's either one or the other, life or condemnation. It, it is one of those two. But Jesus came to deal with that and to give you eternal life. You say, Pastor, are you trying to convert me? If you're not, if you're not a Christian, yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not time sharing it with you. Where I'm like, oh, come in here. Let me bait and switch you. And surprise, you know, there's something I'm, I'm you know, trying to sell you on the end. Like, all cards on the table. You need Jesus. You, you need him to do the God-sized jobs because he's God. You cannot forgive you. You cannot give yourself everlasting life. It doesn't work like, oh, my good outweighs my bad, then I get to heaven. That's not how it works. You've got to have him give you life. You, you cannot pronounce yourself righteous at the end and good at the end. Only Jesus can do that. So you have to go to him. You say, how do I go to him? You go to him in faith and you say, I believe in you and only you. You do for me what I cannot do for myself strictly through faith. So if you don't know him, believe. Believe. You're not, you're not going to wiggle past him. It's one or the other. Life or condemnation. Choose life. 100% of people that have chosen life have not regretted it. 100%. 
If you do know Jesus as your Savior, I'll end with this. It's important that you know what you're saved from so that you know what to be grateful for. It's important that you don't lose sight of the condemnation and the judgment that was yours justly, but through his grace, you were able to escape that by faith in him. So thank him for that and praise him for that. If you've never put your faith in him, he says, how do you get life? How does it all go well for you in eternity? Those that hear my words and believe, believe on Jesus.